Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. Welcome back to another great episode. I'm going to be bringing you two segments. The first is with Dr. Ruth Chen, who will speak about the mysteries behind the tenure and promotion process. Second of all, we'll be interviewing two guests, the first of which is Dr. Madeline Verhovsek. She is a hematologist by day and social advocate by night, and she brings along with her Lyndon George, a political advocate in the Hamilton area, who will be kind of speaking to the role of advocacy in the academy. And I do think that we need to start thinking about how advocacy and community engagement can certainly become a form of academic scholarship. Hello everyone, my name is Teresa Chan and I'm here with my colleague Ruth Chen from the School of Nursing and Dr. Chen is here again because she's just so awesome and last time she taught so many leadership <laughs> pearls that I wanted to bring her back. But I, I, Ruth, I brought you back because I have this burning set of questions and I'll be honest with you, it all comes from me reading that article about Donna Strickland and she's, she was an associate professor, not a full professor at University of Waterloo when she became a Nobel Prize winner. And yes, I think that very quickly after that, someone helped her get her paperwork together and she's now a full professor. (laughs) But there was a lot of social media buzz around how she's just an associate professor. And I feel like that's probably a problem that if a Nobel Prize winner (laughs) doesn't understand tenure and promotion or just promotion for some people, that this is probably more systemic problem, right? It's probably a systematic problem where it's a mystery to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I thought mm-hmm. you have a role in the School of Nursing as the uh, educational coordinator that does some of that development mm-hmm. work for faculty. Mm-hmm. So I thought we could have this conversation. I'd love to just pick your brain about this because I think that even for myself, I kind of knew my next step, but I don't really understand the whole picture. And maybe between the two of us, we can cobble bet together some <laughs> advice for people. But knowing that there are specialists like Rebecca Collier at the Faculty of Health Sciences that I've already kind of tapped on her shoulder to say, how could we find more resources for people so that it's accessible just in time? Because I think we do do some orientation for Faculty of Health Sciences at the very beginning when you're superly overloaded and you're not even thinking about your promotions because you got, just got hired. And so we want, probably got to make a different spin on how we deliver that content. Sure. This could be one of those ways. And so I wanted to have a chat with you about that. So I think that a lot of people walk into this thinking, what is going on with all this promotion stuff anyway? Like, why, why seek a promotion? And so mm-hmm. I thought maybe we could start ch- just sure. diving on that question. What, why do you think are some good reasons? Like when you talk yeah. to people? No. Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, because I think when you work in a university context or you have some sort of faculty appointment, you just kind of take it for granted that this is part of the university life is this tenure and promotion thing. And as the department education coordinator for the School of Nursing, I do know that each department will have a slightly different process. So I won't get into the weeds in terms of the minute details around tenure and promotion, but perhaps just a bigger picture perspective around T and P or P and T as some people call it. 
I could totally understand when you're describing Donna Strickland because, you know, so many times and when I talk with faculty and it happens to be about tenure and promotion, so many people just don't want to deal with the paperwork and the bureaucracy of it. Because, you know, when you think about going up for promotion, when you think about going up for tenure, aside from the motivation of just wanting to have tenure or wanting to have teaching professor permanence, which helps in terms of your own perceptions of job security, there really is less of a motivation, for the most part, that I see in people to get promoted from assistant to associate to full professor because they just don't want to, you know, frankly, deal with the paperwork. So some of the key components in the tenure promotion process that I think are really useful to keep in mind is that, yes, it is good to go up for tenure and promotion. So even as a non-tenure track individual, if you have a clinical faculty appointment, or if you have KWAR, which stands for C-A-W-A-R, Continuing Appointment Without Annual Review, if you have a KWAR, or a clinical faculty appointment, it is still useful to move forward with that tenure promotion process. And if I could provide a few details to help demystify this process so that the bureaucratic burden or the paperwork burden is slightly less, then I'm happy to do that. So really what you want to keep in mind as someone going through this tenure promotion process is that there are a few key pieces that you need to keep track of. Of course, we all know about our CV. Of course, we know about our research productivity, our grants, et cetera, and maintaining our CV with those details. However, in addition to that, something that you want to know or keep in mind at McMaster is that teaching is really valued here in the university. And so that means that in addition to the teaching that you do, whether it be with residents or students across any of the departments, that is something that is valued highly by McMaster. So that comes, the, the measuring of that component of teaching comes in the form currently with student evaluations. Now, there's a lot of discussion around student evaluations and the value of student evaluations, the validity of them. But for now, just know that student evaluations and keeping those evaluations in your portfolio are really useful. So I'll mention the portfolio soon. But the other component that I wanted to make sure to get out there is that peer review is the complementary component to gathering your student evaluations. So be sure to also get feedback from your peers regarding your teaching because peer evaluation is a very important part of that whole tenure and promotion evaluation. All of these pieces, your CV, your student evaluations, your peer evaluation and peer feedback, as well as your record of you know, publications, research grants, et cetera, all go into something called the teaching portfolio or the teaching dossier. So this teaching portfolio also has an additional component that you want to get a head start on at the very outset or at sooner rather than later when you're thinking about the whole tenure and promotion process. And that is creating the teaching philosophy and a teaching statement. So having the opportunity to think through what your own teaching philosophy is, having the opportunity to write that down is a really useful exercise because as teaching is valued here at the university, it will really help you to think through how you approach your own teaching. So the teaching philosophy is also another important aspect of the teaching portfolio. All of that is combined when you are evaluated for tenure and promotion. So 
getting a head start on your teaching portfolio with those components is really useful. Yeah, and it used to be that you had to print everything out in time in these giant binders, but now mm-hmm. I think most people are actually turning it in, in in PDF format. So it feels less daunting, yes. to be honest, right? Because I have to send yes. in three portfolios of, you know, really thick stuff of all the printed teaching evaluations. I think I'd just cry because of all the, the trees that were killed. But now it's a, a lot easier because you can keep most of these things digitally. So for junior faculty members or even mid-career faculty members that never did this, do you think about having, I actually troop it on Dropbox, so it's like a shoebox, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's the old school shoebox of all your teaching evals or all your artifacts of, you know, thank you letters and other things like that. I actually put all of that stuff into a Dropbox folder so that mm-hmm. if my computer dies, I don't lose it. And, and it's just basically, it's, it's just my personal data. So it's not like you're storing confidential patient data or other things mm-hmm. like that, but I just throw it all together and I, and I have a file within that folder that's unfiled. And then I have the filing system that the university uses and I find that's easier to do. And so ever so often I'll go into the unfiled folder and throw it into the filed folder with the, with the first four things on the file name being the year. So it's very easy then for me to find my 2019 stuff or my 2018 stuff. And I think that, that that's just my approach to kind of staying organized and on top of things. And so like, I think having some of those hacks would be nice for people. So I'm going to just share. Yeah, <laughs> no, definitely. I think, Teresa, your, your hack, TMP hack is really helpful because, mm-hmm. you know, part of the, the burden of maintaining all this for tenure and promotion can be lessened by just keeping an organized system from the outset. Because what happens is all this information, whether it be stored on a cloud drive or Dropbox, et cetera, gets then shared with the DEC of your particular department. So the DEC is the Department Education Coordinator. So the DEC then looks at that information and they too have to write a letter for your tenure and promotion. So it's called a DETER, D-T-E-R, Department Teaching Education Report. That deeder then gets combined with the letter that your chair writes, and your chair then summarizes your contributions to the department or school. They also incorporate any of the references that you're required to obtain or the tenure and promotion committee is required to obtain. The internal department then decides on your ability to go forward to the Faculty of Health Sciences. The Faculty of Health Sciences has a tenure and promotion committee, which then moves your package to the university. And so that's when Senate reviews and it gets approved by Senate and the Board of Governors, etc. So there are multiple steps in this process that are all intended to support the success of each faculty member. And it just takes time. And usually this whole tenure and promotion process happens approximately a year before your next appointment. So we usually start our promotion packages in this whole timeline, September of the year prior to the July, next July's new appointment date. Oh, wow. So that's like, if someone was being asked by you right now by email to prep stuff that you they get an email in September of 2020, and then it actually wouldn't be until July 2021. That's right. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. no, 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 2022, right? So it's no. the, a year and a, a year and a half or so? Oh, well, yeah, there are some some steps that even that start even earlier. But yeah, at the very least, we would be getting some of this started in terms of compiling your teaching portfolios over a year in advance of the appointment date. 
So, yeah, I was going to say, because yeah. I'm pretty sure my apartment had me starting stuff like 18, 24 months before, yeah. right? Because yes. in order to be ready to be assessed with your internal committee, you have to have done mm-hmm. all that pre-work. Otherwise, right. it is a lot of work. But I think that if hopefully systems thinkers like yourself, and I know my DEC was Amin Patel when I went up, and, and so he had a checklist of things mm-hmm. that he wanted me to yes. get done, and he kept me on a really tight schedule. And you know what? It, it was really nice because he kind of coached me through the whole process. So having those dry runs of having people look over your portfolio even if I was just getting it prepped for him when I was meeting with him I think that was really helpful because then Mm -hmm. I just had to update the last version so it's kind of like software updates right like if you just are updating from like this version of software to that version of software it's a lot easier than if you had to start from scratch and learn a whole new operating system and never had like even opened it up before this new Android system or whatever, right? Like, you know, like that's the idea is that we have to, we have to make things easier for ourselves. So don't put, put it off because putting it off actually makes it worse. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It just makes it that much more of a burden. Okay, so that makes sense. So basically the journey of a faculty through this process is that at some point, someone emails you and says, get your stuff together. You're going to get your stuff together. You're going to write some stuff like a teaching philosophy. You're going to put it together in maybe a teaching dossier that has all your student evaluations of teachers, maybe your peer evaluations of your teaching. And then you're going to take that you're going to send it to someone who's going to go and summarize it. So it might be your chair, associate chair. It could be your head of school, that kind of thing. And then that person then has maybe a committee that looks as a dry run, like a simulation to say, is this person going to be successful if we mm-hmm. put them up to the to main kind of campus adjudication? And at that level, once you've been put up to that level, you're being adjudicated next to all the other people that are going up for the same, I guess, promotion. And so you might be judged against history profs or psychology profs or sociologists or English literature specialists, right? So you're not just getting compared to other health sciences people. You're actually comparing to a whole bunch of other people. And that committee is pretty diverse, mm-hmm. right? That committee is right. full of people who are of different disciplinary backgrounds. And so they might not understand what being plastic surgery program director is, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so it's your job to kind of give that explanation, that context, and hopefully your, your leaders that have endorsed you will also do so as well to explain how big a deal that is because they might not understand, right? Because if someone mm-hmm. told me that some role in like the National History Society that they have is really important, I wouldn't know that unless someone contextualized it. And, mm-hmm. and I totally get that. So I think that that's part of the mystery. Like why are there's all these structures? Like this isn't super relevant to me that sometimes the, the thing that we go through when we have the bureaucratic structures that are meant for everyone is that it can Mm -hmm. be a little bit opaque, right? So, Yeah, it's a good point because as the DEC, when I have to write the DEETER, there's a very set structure. And the reason for that is because they are comparing DEETERs from people not only within the FHS, Faculty of Health Sciences, but also across the university. So that Department Education Coordinator letter has to follow a particular format, and then the letter from the chair or the dean also has to follow similar format, et cetera, just for consistency. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I think that'll go a long way to helping a lot of people understand this whole process. <laughs> and just to be clear, not everyone goes up for tenure in, in our faculty health sciences, right. right? And so Ruth has already explained a lot of different ways that 
people might all get promoted, but they might not actually get a tenure status. Tenure status mm-hmm. is a very specific group of people who will be made permanent more within the university hierarchy. It's an older mm-hmm. term. We call it still PNT, TMP, because those are the those are the structures that we have. Because main campus tenure is a big thing, but mm-hmm. the bulk of our faculty actually within faculty health sciences are either in the clinical track, so the clinical yeah, that's right. appointments that are conditional to them having an appointment where they are a clinician or they are KWAR. So they are continuing appointment without annual review. <laughs> that's it. That's it. I, I, I am a KWAR faculty. I can't remember what it stands for sometimes. So, and that's contingent on your funding source and has to do more with the fact that my clinical earnings actually are, are right. the reason why I can be employed within this thing. And then there are obviously some people who do have that a tenure track position mm-hmm. as they're called right. and that they have those responsibilities but then also additional hurdles they have to jump through and usually a very high bar for what makes for tenure right and so I think that's that's all good to know and sometimes when you're talking to other people that are at your level like assistant mm-hmm. or associate prof sometimes we don't talk to each other well because we're not it's like the tower of babel everyone's got a different contract in the background mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. what works for some person is is not the same for another and you know for some clinician colleagues of mine you don't actually get a pay bump right, right. by being promoted so that's definitely not like the reason why i would say that you need to go up for this stuff but i think part of it's for role modeling right especially mm-hmm. for all the women out there that are listening we know that in academia especially in academic medicine specifically less so in nursing less so in rehab there are less women associate profs and less women full profs than there should be for the proportion Mm -hmm. that there are women in our profession. So I do think that part of it is that you're role modeling that this is the right thing to do and Mm -hmm. that it is natural because we we also know that some of these positions, we also know that some of the leadership positions that might come up have a necessary component where you can't be something until you have a certain rank or there are certain awards they're ineligible for. So it does have ramifications in other ways. And at the very least, you should probably go up for full prof because there are lots of young women looking up to you that might aspire to be like you someday. And that's should be a, a good enough reason, I think, in and of itself to get the paperwork together. But, it, you know, yeah, like I think point. that that's a yeah. whole a different discussion for another podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm probably going to be seeing if I can speak with uh, some of the chairs and some of the senior women in medicine specifically to talk a little bit about that gap a little bit. No, oh, it's an excellent point. All right. Well, thank you so much for your taking the time to talk to me again, because this is definitely pulling back the curtain. We have a series that we're calling Scholarly Secrets, and this is one of those scholarly secrets that we definitely know that people, it shouldn't be a secret, but it it often is a mystery to many people, right? So, So thanks, Ruth, so much for joining me. Thanks for pulling back the curtain and just revealing to us the process and the pathway to promotion. My pleasure. Good to talk with you, too. So that was simply an amazing first segment. And I'm going to give you a bit of a commercial now about our upcoming 2021 Women's Symposium. This was co-developed by the Department of Medicine's Associate Chair Equity and Inclusion. But more importantly, it's a place for the women within our faculty and those who identify as allies of women to really explore the idea of how women can lead in healthcare and beyond. As we know, there's a bit of a gender gap in our world. And at McMaster University, I think we have to try to see how we can, as faculty, really help to close that gap. We've brought together some amazing speakers from the world of politics, from the world of academia, from the worlds of healthcare. And I think it's going to be an amazing event. So definitely come and check it out. 
We are so grateful for all of our sponsors for coming to this event. You can check out more information about all of them at the Women's Symposium website. So definitely check out our event calendar and find the 2021 Women's Symposium, which will be on April 28th, 2021. It'll be great to have you there. And we're hoping that all of you, men, women, those who are non-binary or two-spirited, can join us and figure out how we can definitely raise awareness that women can lead in healthcare. Hello, listeners of Mac PFD Spark. Welcome to another exciting episode. Today, I have a force to be reckoned with, I think is the term that I would uh, use, but Dr. Madeline Verhosek is here to talk to me a little bit about some of the advocacy work she does with regards to the work that she does clinically, but then how she spun that into something that she can actually engage in in a more policy maybe political sometimes, maybe even just health systems oriented way. So Madeline, can you say hi to everyone? Yeah. Hi. Thanks so much, Teresa. I'm so excited to have these kinds of discussions. I've kind of stumbled my way into advocacy, I would say. So for me, it all comes down to relationships that I have with patients in my clinic. And where on the front lines in healthcare, we end up seeing the experiences that our patients are having that seem suboptimal and taking a step back and thinking, okay, what are the bigger systems here? Or what are the educational needs or both that could help improve this at a higher level rather than trying to put out individual fires or in addition to putting, helping to put out individual fires with individual patient situations? And I think that one of the big things is that a lot of people don't feel like they can change the system. So to some of our folks that are listening, how, how did you overcome that barrier? Because I think that that's a huge barrier for many is that they, they don't see the system as maybe changeable sometimes, or it's really hard to change. And I think that that gets people to a certain point and then, and then it's, it's just rinse and repeat doing the same thing within a broken system. Yeah, it's for sure as frontline healthcare professionals, we're in this unique position because we are, I guess, for lack of a better analogy, in the trenches dealing with sometimes often life and death situations. And we have this unique perspective, and I would argue responsibility to our patients such that if they are encountering barriers that within the healthcare system, then we are we our voice has the potential to have more impact for system change. So I'll I'll use as an example, I've been on faculty at McMaster now for just over 10 years. And I had trained here, as they say, Mac Lifer. I did every all my training at Mac and realized that I was interested in learning more about and furthering the care for individuals with sickle cell disease and thalassemia, which are both inherited disorders of hemoglobin, inherited anemias. So I had gone down to Boston and done that training with the idea that I'd come back to Mac and start a clinic. And so I got back bright-eyed and bushy-tailed on my first in my first days and weeks back at Mac. And I said, okay, great, I'm ready to start the clinic. And then I was told, okay, meet with so-and-so. Okay, so I went and met with so-and-so and so-and-so was an administrator. And I explained to them what we needed to do. And they said, okay, that sounds great, but there's no money. I'm like, oh, okay, this is weird. Uh, you know, Mac helped to fund my training to go away to do this training. And then I'm supposed to be starting a clinic. Um, that wasn't what I expected. And they said, oh, but meet with so-and-so. 
So you know where this story is going. I met with all the so-and-sos and each person kind of nodded their head and heard about this population of patients who were mostly young, who had these complex chronic diseases that required multidisciplinary care and a number of different specialized services in an integrated fashion. And their eyes sort of glazed over and each conversation ended with, oh, that's really interesting, but there's no money. So I think I got tossed in the deep end of advocacy right off the get-go uh, with that with that situation because I didn't realize that I was needing to come in and advocate for resources. I, I thought I was going to get this medical knowledge and then the magic would happen. I think because I just got thrown into advocacy mode right off the get-go, well, sure sure enough, then a few years into all these meetings, I walked into one meeting and a few minutes in, they said, oh, we have some resources. And I, you could have just knocked me over with a feather because I'd had so many of these fruitless meetings. So then, then the clinic started, but sure enough, the population expanded or sure enough, there were places where the patients were repeatedly encountering care barriers. And so it was acknowledging where those problems lied and, and trying to strategize who, who are going to be the folks who have leverage in this situation to make this better. And I'll say where that became really interesting and really exciting and has in a way led to where I am now doing more and more, not only patient advocacy related to sickle cell and education, but more and more into anti-racism and health equity work was the, the turning point was when I paired up with the sickle cell patient support organizations who were already starting some political advocacy at provincial and at federal levels. And it was that aha moment where I, where I saw, okay, every time I walk in to talk with an administrator at the hospital, of trying to advocate for my patients, I, I feel as though I'm getting this skepticism. Like somehow I'm asking for resources for me. They don't, they, they think that I'm being disingenuous and say, and that somehow it's going to benefit me when really I felt that my motives were quite pure. So it was in partnering with the patient organizations, with the patients themselves, with the patient uh, family members and other advocates, where I felt as though, okay, this, this is really where it's at. And not only because of our different identities in the issue, but also because of the different perspectives and voices that came out of that. And I could help them with some of the medical jargon. I could help them with understanding the hospital systems and but really their voice was the most valuable in creating change. Yeah, I think engaging patients is really important. And I mean, we have actually a whole office of community engagement that helps educators actually in the McMaster system actually engage with the local communities. And those of you who are in regional campuses, there actually are dedicated people that help with that at each of the regional campuses as well. But on that note, I would like to kind of bring in one of our other guests in the show, Mr. Lyndon George. Say hi to everyone, Lyndon. Hi, uh, good evening, everyone. Pleasure to be here today. All right. I don't know if it'll be evening when people listen, but uh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. Point. Maybe some of them are be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but anyway, that's all good. Lyndon is a patient advocate, actually, within some of our health systems. And he also does some work politically supporting some of our MPPs in, in around the area and has been in that circuit for quite some time. 
Lyndon comes to us being an, an, a native-born Hamiltonian and has been here for a long time and has grown up in the community for which McMaster serves, at least the main campus of McMaster serves. And I thought that we'd bring him in to talk about what it's like to partner with someone like Dr. Verhovsek, um to make change. And if you have any insights on how others might be able to partner with people like yourself to also make change. I think it's, you know, the work that Dr. Verhosek does on the advocacy side is, is so instrumental to elevating the voices of racialized communities. And without it, you're not having these important discussions that we're having now. And so they're critical. And I would say to any physician out there who, you know, is passionate about their work is to elevate voices around you and to try and create that space. And that's what Dr. Verhosek does incredibly well. And she was gracious enough when she uh, heard my story to sit down with me uh, and talk to me about that kind of advocacy work that goes on in the sickle cell community. And and then, you know, from there, we started working together with other colleagues now in the community as well to elevate important issues. And you need that leadership. And I think it's a real example of the kind of leadership that we need up and down our healthcare system, right? And and we can't leave it to someone else. And Dr. Pavosi does that incredibly well. And it, you know, it, it spurred me into then going on and, and, and being more uh, vocal at the community level of healthcare and to continue to push for the kind of transformational change that we need. But it's not an easy thing to do, you know? It, it, it's a, to take on healthcare, uh, it, it's it's a massive, you know, both of you work there, right? And you understand the, sometimes the politics and the structural systems that exist, right? And you need somebody who can navigate that with you and reassure you. And that's been a critical voice that I, I've been very grateful to have. Yeah, and instead of having a partner kind of inside uh, and understanding the the politics and the procedures of a healthcare organization seems like it's very helpful to you as a community member. Is that correct? It is, you know, and when you're genuine in a community of talking about these issues and you keep hearing a name over and over again of who you should talk to, when I was raising these issues around my, my treatment and, and what I had experienced, multiple individuals within our community had come forward and said, you should really talk to Dr. Bohosik around this. And that's a testament to, to the work that she's done. And, and I think, you know, to, if you are having healthcare issues and you feel like you've experienced something, you need to be able to turn to your physician and to your doctor and have that discussion. And, and for a lot of folks who, who, you know, you may not feel comfortable having that discussion because sometimes your physician just doesn't look like you and doesn't have that same experience. And so when you recognize someone who has that empathy and that understanding, it is so much more reassuring. And we talk a little bit around, you know, uh, those microaggressions that we get in healthcare. Uh, when you get the reassuring, you know, when you get the, the reassurance that I hear you, I understand it, and I've seen that too, that is profound and, and, uh, and we need more of that in our healthcare system. Yeah, that's a very good point. And any any thoughts from the opposite side in terms of having community members locally that can inform what you do and the advocacy work that you do within the system? Madeline, do you have any thoughts that you'd like to share about how people can leverage that and what it means to you as a leader in our healthcare system to do that and as an academic as well? Yeah, 100%. Lyndon has been an incredible partner in the in the work that we have together and with others continued on over the past nine to 12 months. I would say there's not really a formula for, you know, how do you partner up with individuals in the community, but I guess I would have a few tips about that. Number one, each one of us is working in different settings. You know, as a physician, if you're interested in advocacy or or on the flip side, if you didn't realize you were interested in advocacy, but there's this voice telling you, you know, something's not right here to do with a population of patients you're serving or with something in a setting that you're working, 
then the question becomes, is my voice enough as a physician or do we need other voices to round out the perspectives on this topic? And so, you know, if I think back, going back to the early days of some of the sickle cell advocacy, I realized as a white physician doing work with a primarily racialized population of patients, you know, my voice was not enough and like not even close. So we started to look for ways, we started to think about, okay, well, let's talk to our patients. Which ones of them seem to be very outreach oriented? Which ones seem very keen? You know, we're fortunate in our sickle cell clinic that it's a pediatric and adult program. So we're looking at some of the parents who are very vocal, who are very proactive in reaching out to, say, their their child's school to provide that kind of education and advocacy on behalf of their child. Recognizing too, though, that people who are living with medical problems or who are or who are supporting family members with medical problems may not have the bandwidth to dump to jump into a lot of this. But I'd say kind of having your antennae up about the people around you, people who you are serving in your medical practice. So as I think back, we ended up having an outreach session that was just a community education session at Stewart Memorial Church, which is a historic Black Canadian church in downtown Hamilton. And it was, it just came together so beautifully with the patient organization supporting. We had the Ontario Black History Society representing. We had at the time, Councillor, now Member of Parliament, Matthew Green, who came to support the event. We had Evelyn Myrie, Myrie, who is a local Black leader in Hamilton. And I had kind of felt out with a couple of my patients who I felt might be good to provide their story. And they were both delighted to have five minutes to share their story. And it was this magical session where we had so many perspectives all around the table. I thought, okay, this is the, this is the kind of collaboration that we need. So similarly, moving into anti-racism work, a lot of it overlaps with that, but trying to find ways in a healthcare system where there isn't sufficient representation of black physicians and healthcare professionals, trying to figure out ways where we can bring in community members, how we can make this an interprofessional initiative, right? Bringing in social work, bringing in nursing, and uh, again, the richness of the voices that come to that table end up furthering the agenda so much more than any one single person can do. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a really powerful message. I think that adding more voices to our our setting can be very powerful and let you see something from a different vantage point. Both of you are very active in advocacy and politics in different levels. And so as two experienced leaders, what are some what are some tips and tricks you have for people who want to start doing this, but maybe aren't sure how to best facilitate some of these changes? That's a good question. You know, I, I struggled with that one from, from the beginning. And when I first experienced it back in Ottawa with that with, with my first uh, health in, uh, incident, I didn't know how to do that advocacy work. And in fact, there's a lot of trepidation to call, like to try and hold the system accountable that you often have to turn to for help, right? And that, you know, you see that across the spectrum, whether it's, you know, policing or or in the medical field, it's like, you know, when I may not have gotten the best care or the best treatment, but I'm afraid if I say something now, will that change the next time I, I encounter that system? And so you you need to first you know understand that speaking up doesn't mean that you should be you should be afraid of what comes next. I think you need to be able to to first you know acknowledge your own fear and that's okay, but also think about the importance of what that 
advocacy work will mean not only for you but for your community and sometimes you don't have to be the person at the microphone you don't have to be the person in on 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 the webinar you don't have to be the person on the podcast you you can write you can send that email you can you can advocate in other ways to try and elevate an issue that is important to you i see that all the time when it comes down to individuals contacting their political official or to their hospital administration right like for a long time there was this push to get a patient ombudsman's office i I'm not going to critique that right now. I think that's a whole other discussion for another podcast. But there is that element of saying, you know, to elevate that voice, make, you know, to say, I have an issue and I think you should hear it is, is the first step. And then, you know, reach out to other individuals through social media. I think one of the things that, that I found was just by talking about my experience, sometimes other people, it will resonate with someone and you all of a sudden this discourse starts to happen. And so, you know, be mindful. It is your health story. Sometimes it's really personal. And, you know, for me, sharing it was deeply personal. But what I found was after I was in, you know, in The Spectator, I had individuals just coming up to me, literally talking to me who I'd never met before and sharing their health story. And that's the next story that's so critical is just providing that space to have the uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, I think listening is so important. And I'm really struck by the idea of how we can create spaces for leaders to really engage in meaningful listening. And I think sometimes it feels like the world's going back so fast these days. And sometimes it's really hard to stop, pause and create that space. So I think that's a really good idea. Any thoughts, closing thoughts, Madeline? Yeah, in terms of those uncomfortable conversations is sometimes where we may shy, that whole idea of being stuck in an uncomfortable conversation may be the thing that dissuades a lot of people from jumping into advocacy, whether they're a member of the community, whether they're patient who wants to raise concerns or, or point out ways that the healthcare system could do things better, or whether it's healthcare professionals, physicians who are thinking that they see ways that they could bring about change it's kind of that thought of, oh, but this isn't going to be, what if people aren't receptive of this? And what I would say from a, a patient standpoint, when I hear a patient describing an authentic description of experiences they, that they have had, and when they see that I'm listening, you know, there, there are sometimes tears that come after that. These are really deeply affecting experiences that people have. And so I've said this to patients before. In fact, you know, one, one of my patients, I really recommended to them that they reach out and step forward for another patient advisory group at, at a, in a different healthcare setting. And I said, you know what, the hospital could not pay you enough money for the perspective that you have as a consultant. You know, this particular person was somebody who has spent many, many days and weeks in hospital, has encountered every single square inch of the hospital for one reason or another, diagnostic imaging, you know, different procedures. And I thought their lived experience of interactions with hundreds of healthcare professionals, interactions with every department within the hospital, you couldn't, you couldn't have a better undercover assessment if, if the hospital was bringing that person and saying, tell us about where we do things really well. But I think somehow in healthcare, whether it's a reputation we have or whether it's a fair reputation we have, maybe, you know, it's almost a, something that we don't want to turn over every rock because it just feels like we're barely treading water some of the time as it is. But I would say, you know, as people trying to navigate the system, there is power in numbers. And so whether that's getting together with other 
folks who have had similar experiences in healthcare, or whether that is joining forces, maybe in a formal way as Lyndon has done and, and his commitment to that has been exemplary to, to being a, a patient and family advisor. And sometimes wrestling though with the systems that systems that may be resistant to change. So all in all, if I was to say it in a nutshell, I don't think we should be discouraged by those uncomfortable conversations. We have to realize that by by opening up and engaging in uncomfortable conversations, that is the only way that change ever comes about. If we're all just sitting in our comfort zone, then some people whose voices are excluded are not seeing the kind of care that they need, and that's especially important in healthcare. All right. So thank you so much to both of you for engaging in this dialogue with me. I'm really inspired to think about how I can make change in my system now and to think about how we can carve out a way to acknowledge that kind of community-based advocacy work as, as a form of scholarship. I think it's 100% a new way forward in academia for us. I, I think that it's something that's very much desired and needed. And I really appreciate your candidness and your willingness to engage in, in, in this discussion with me today. And hopefully we can continue to make change and lobby for us to see these things as new forms of scholarship and new endeavors that are worthy of the academy. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Teresa. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much, Teresa. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuum Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.